thank you so much, Alice. That's the most gorgeous introduction. And that, that is a phrase that I absolutely love from Melora um, Marx, that there's something nerdy about film phenomenology, and it does force you to engage that nerdy, nose up against the glass, cinephilia, I guess, that we all, part of film studies is knowing how to detach yourself slightly from that, but never lose it, I think. So, yes, I was thinking, just as I was sitting at back this morning, the inclusion of ever transgressive is, I suppose, slightly sarcastic or slightly tongue-in-cheek, because that is how Murdoch is always talked about, the transgressive Iris Murdoch, the wild Iris Murdoch. So I'll come to talk about that in a minute, but that's included, I suppose, out of um, homage to the title of the conference, Teaching to Transgress. Um, and um, I what I want to do today is, in three parts, first of all, discuss the field of film philosophy and kind of set that out a little bit and where my work fits within it because very um, generously Alice and the, uh, invited me to speak about my work and my current work. Um, so then I want to talk about what I'm not doing with Iris Murdoch, um, as in a few words about the film Iris and my reading of it. And finally, some film philosophy with Iris Murdoch, showing how her moral philosophy can be brought into dialogue with cinema. So thank you very much to Alice and to the organising committee for asking me to come and talk about this. I'm at the beginning of my work on Murdoch and cinema. I've given about three papers on it. and I'm, I'm hoping to do a book on it um, on my next sabbatical. So, but what is film philosophy? Well, it's a discipline that's really kind of boomed over the last ten years. When I started my PhD, which was in 2004, uh, bringing the work of Lucy Rigorai into dialogue with film, there were some edited collections of philosophical readings of films, work on the existential angst of Woody Allen cinema, and some work on films such as The Matrix, Alien, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Run, Lola, Run. Um, there's the hugely influential work of Gilles Deleuze's cinema books, um, one and two, concerning the movement image and the time image, and the warmly cinephilic marriage of film and philosophy of Stanley Cavell, American philosopher Stanley Cavell, who's really prioritised cinema in his body of work. There's the work, there was the work of the cognitivists, David Bordwell and Noel Carroll, and the so-called continentals, Andre Bazin and Emmanuel Levinas. But this was pretty much the framework within which the field of film and philosophy was being explored together. I went to a conference in, I think, 2006 at Queen's University Belfast on philosophy and film, and then to the first conference of the Film Philosophy Journal in Bristol. And here I met broadly like-minded scholars who talked about the philosophical significance of film, how it relates to our everyday lives, how it looks like the real world but is different from the real world, the societies in which we live, and the way in which we might understand the world. There was a great concern with ethics, particularly in relation to the work of Levinas, and also a concern with aesthetics as to what kind of art form film actually is. And at that stage, there was a sort of books that were in circulation were a limited permutation of um, the words film, philosophy, images, thought, thinking. Um, the way in which to even describe the activity was kind of hotly contested. There is a reason why the Film Philosophy Journal has a hyphen film hyphen philosophy. Um, the hyphen is supposedly reflects the equality and parity of the disciplines. This is not philosophy and film, or of film, um, or indeed, as one leading uh, manifesto by Daniel Frampton describes, philosophy. 
Now, the work of Cavell and Deleuze has legions of followers. And indeed, over the last 10 years, more work has been done to bring other philosophers into the fold, including looking back over the century of writing about cinema to Epstein, Eisenstein, Krakauer, and Arnheim, and seeing what they were concerned with as really being film philosophical work about the nature of cinema and its status as art, as well as its relationship to the world around us and the societies in which we live. Now, as you may have noticed, all these thinkers are men. The presence of women philosophers in the field is limited. No, it's small. Um, people have written about Beauvoir, and uh, there's a lovely collection on existentialism and cinema. There's one on Sartre, there's one on Beauvoir. Um, Michel Ledeus, Simone Weil, my own work on Lucy Rigorai, as well as other film scholars, uh, Davina Quinlivan and Caro Bainbridge. There's some work on Sixu. I recently examined a PhD on um, the laugh of the Medusa and cinema, writing women's bodies. And I've also given a talk on women's laughter in cinema in relation to the laugh of the Medusa. Um, I've, I've put together a panel this year for Film Philosophy Conference, which is at St Anne's, Iris Murdoch's old college, uh, with Lisa Downing, who's already been mentioned this morning, talking about Ayn Rand in philosophy and film and Libby Saxton talking about Marie-José Monzain. So called fem the panel is called Female Philosophers, Film and Form. So there are attempts we are working at populating the field of film philosophy with more women. But why so few? Well, this opens the big questions, obviously, about why there are so few women philosophers whose work is known and in currency. But there is work there. For example, who also has been mentioned this morning, Virginia Woolf wrote an essay in 1926, do people know it, on the cinema, um, that has been profoundly influential on me. And I am, frankly, evangelical about handing out multiple copies of this essay to students year in, year out, and have been known to do it at conferences too, so you're very lucky I haven't brought them all today. But Woolf was visiting the cinema in the 20s in London fascinated by the experience and entranced by the power of cinema, trying to work out what the specific power, capabilities, abilities and potential of cinema was. She saw it very much as in its infancy, but conceived of it as incredibly powerful and writes that filmmakers actually don't even realise the power of what they have at the moment. She describes the moment when she went to see the German expressionist horror, The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, and describes a moment in the film, which was actually a flaw in the film, but that's another story, um, a moment in the film where a kind of black blob creeps across the corner of the film as being an expression of fear itself, not the statement, I am afraid. So not being told a form not, being t not telling you, I am afraid, but showing you, making you experience fear. And yet this essay is rarely talked about in the film archaeology or film phenomenology project. So I want to say a little bit more about female thinkers and attitudes to their work. Having worked on Irigaray for my PhD, I encountered quite a lot of people over the years who thought she was very limited or just plain wrong-headed or just copying Levinas. Um, and having started work on Murdoch in the last couple of years, I've also attended several events where I have heard her described as a wild or unruly thinker. 
There's a lack of respect there that I just do not see directed at Lacan or A.J. Eyre. A.M. Wilson describes Murdoch's philosophy as no more than secular sermonising in his um, biography of her. And another element that affects the take-up and popularity of female thinkers is, of course, the concentration on their biography. Wolfe falls foul of this, and Murdoch certainly does. Irigaray always said this to me, I met her several times, that she would not release any biographical details because as a woman your reputation becomes dominated by your biography. And she's right. And Iris Murdoch is a prime example of this. Which leads me on to the second area I want to talk about today, which is what I am not doing with the relationship between Iris Murdoch and <laughs> film. <laughs> Number two, my heading is not my work on Iris Murdoch. So as soon as I tell people that I'm, I'm doing this, people say, oh, I've seen that film. I loved that film. And I say, with irritation, but I'm not working on the film. And the reason I'm not is because the film is not about the thinker Iris Murdoch. It is about the devotion of John Bailey to his wife, who is portrayed as polarised instances of either young, headstrong, sexually adventurous and intellectually fierce, or old, ailing, as Alzheimer's disease ravages her intellectual capacity and she ends up urinating on the floor and watching Teletubbies. Peter Conradi, close friend and authorised biographer of Murdoch, described the two faces of Iris as presented in Iris and as then perpetuated in popular culture as either bonking or bonkers. <laughs> it's a film about Alzheimer's and it's a film about superlative performances slash impersonations by two of the famous, most famous English actresses of the day, Kate Winslet and Judi Dench. But all of this high-octane prominence of the actresses and outsiders is at the expense of the woman, of the thinker, Iris Murdoch. And so when I was actually asked to write a book chapter recently on stardom and ageing, I decided to mobilise my irritation with the film by writing about it in this light. And in this chapter, I've examined the film in relation to star studies, taking Richard Dyer's semiotic approach of circulating texts around the star and Christine Gerrity's approach to contemporary stardom, bringing in celebrity, professional and performer, in order to understand how the stars of this film are created or constructed. And this is for a book recently published, which I think some of you might be interested in, called Feminisms, um, edited by Laura Mulvey and Anna Backman-Rogers. Um, so, having asserted that I was not going to write about the film, Iris, I have in fact done so. But in order to demonstrate why it is not a text that is appropriate to work on in relation to Iris Murdoch in film. So, other things I'm not doing with Murdoch. I attended the Iris Murdoch conference in September at the University of Kingston and met a whole range of Murdoch fans and scholars and also discovered loads of other ways in which I will not be working on Iris Murdoch. <laughs> I was the only person there talking about film. Most of the approaches there were tied up with biography. Is a certain character in XY novel supposed to be Elias Canetti? A kind of guess who of the characters in her fiction? Or where can Murdoch's conception of transcendent good or loving attention be found in her novels? Where can it be developed in her novels? Is that, and is that how we should understand it, I was thinking? Is it, is it that her philosophical works and her novels are inseparable and you have to look for the development of that thinking in her novels? 
There are many biographies and sort of tell-all accounts by men who were seemingly under her spell in some way or in love with her or enthralled by her, an ex-student, obviously her husband, ex-colleagues. And stories in those books about her teaching or about her entertaining at home or dining in hall um, make her seem a very vivid presence in one's imagination. She's certainly a huge character. But this presence that's created is largely second-hand and imbued with the agenda of others. So there's also the Iris Murdoch archive at the University of Kingston of a huge amount of material, including her letters to Philippa Foote and Bridget Brophy, that have been so instrumental in creating a sensationalised image of Murdoch's bisexuality and tempestuous love affairs. In today's world of new media, Iris Murdoch has a pretty active presence. The Iris Murdoch Twitter account <laughs> has nearly 3,000 followers and is run by Dr Pamela Osborne at the University of Kingston. The account is in Murdoch's name, so Iris Murdoch posts and retweets about her or about those who have read her or those associated with Bridget Brophy and people. So the tweets come as a... Obviously, I follow this, and the tweets come as a jolt every time I see Iris Murdoch has favourited your tweet, Iris <laughs> Murdoch has retweeted you. There's a Facebook group... Um, called the Iris Murdoch Appreciation Society, again run by the Kingston academics, who do a fantastic job for keeping her, uh, her work alive and in circulation. And this group seems to be mainly populated by people who read her novels, and they want to talk about their impressions and opinions of characters and issues in the books. They assess works and talk about Iris as well, and there can be a slightly odd dynamic here. So people ask for information such as reading lists or things like this, but then they also ask what Iris might have thought about something, whether or not she might have liked something. And people say things like, oh, Iris would have agreed with you there, or Iris wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> the Pinterest pages, these are my favourites. <laughs> the Pinterest pages demonstrate the idea of Murdoch as a muse essentially, for people's philosophical, spiritual, intellectual and artistic lives. There are fetishistic collections of classic book covers that are gorgeous, but that are sort of poured over in intense detail. Displays of classic um, and unusual book covers, selections of quotes, reincorporated into new images, photographs of Iris Murdoch and John Bailey, and... I think my favourite one is the kind of incorporation of Murdoch into today's cupcake culture with quotes about, from the sea, the sea, saying, one of the secrets to a happy life is continuous small treats um, surrounded by fairy cakes and cupcakes with glacé cherries on them. Now, one of my favourite and more useful, getting into more productive encounters... Um, presences or areas in which Murdoch is present in this culture is the YouTube clips. I don't know if anybody's seen any of those, but they are magnetic. I'm slightly obsessed with them. In these clips, Murdoch is an established name, clearly a presence in British culture. These range from the 60s, 70s, 80s. And in these conversations, she is known um, for her work, not her private life. This is pre-Alzheimer's pre-revelation about um, erotic encounters and obsessive correspondence with people. What is discussed in these clips is the unique relationship she has to the disciplines of literature and philosophy. 
She was one of the few women with such a profile. In the Brian McGee series, Men of Ideas, in 1978, there were 15 episodes where prominent, and that, that first clip is from Men of Ideas, uh, where prominent contemporary philosophers discussed notable philosophers, and Murdoch was the only woman uh, who featured in that whole series. And, uh, in fact, in his 1987 series, The Great Philosophers, there was only one woman too, and that was Martha Nussbaum. But this is the middle section of Murdoch's life. Not the bonking or the bonkers. Well, probably both, but we didn't know, we don't know about that. Um, but the working, thinking, speaking, philosophising Iris. And she talks so much, so brilliantly, so fascinatingly about art. The type of thinking that attending to art requires as opposed to science. And the metaphysical nature of the relationship to art involving love and choice and change. Watched and studied alongside the written words of Murdoch's philosophy, I think these videos are a really valuable contribution to furthering an understanding of Murdoch's moral thinking. She's thinking on her feet here. It's a way of experiencing Murdoch thinking, responding, developing, and a record of her working that is suited to the discursive discipline of philosophy, a record of her discussing, working as a philosopher. One can vaguely fantasise about being her pupil in one of these... Um, Encounters. So, third section, Murdoch's philosophy and film. I'm looking at her writings on building moral vision through attention and commitment to a transcendent good and thinking about this in relation to films that might be understood as making a demand of us as, as moral texts, moral, morally philosophical thinking. Murdoch's moral philosophy is founded on the concept of loving attention, an objectual, directed, visual attention that involves the self and the object of one's attention in a dynamic that is extremely suited to thinking about the experience of watching a film, watching characters in a film. <coughs> and the processes of empathy and sympathy that are involved. And it also suggests a way in which experience in the film might be a moral learning experience us, not just in relation to the film. So a few words about Murdoch here. She was known primarily as a novelist, but was also a philosopher at St Anne's here down the road. Her modes of thinking were not fashionable at Oxford at the time with its linguistic analytic philosophers. And so this explains somehow how Murdoch was seen somewhat as an outsider. She was writing philosophical texts from the <coughs> early 50s to the late 90s. And she frequently pitted herself against the British philosophical establishment, challenging philosophers such as Hampshire, Hare and Moore, and pursuing Plato, inspired by Simone Weil, to turn to the continental philosophers for inspiration, and then came back again and worked on very much her own kind of moral <coughs> responses to classical moral questions. There are several systematic works that collate her philosophical texts and analyse them, and which demonstrate the impact and significance of her thinking in relation to debates in ethics and moral philosophy. I find her philosophy to be a rigorous and exacting read, profoundly humane and meticulously argued, and, excitingly for me, full of visual metaphors. Full of visual metaphors. So her philosophy is very concerned with the individual and with individual consciousness. She's opposed to the idea that morality is something be, that be decided upon in isolation from the real world and the real people in it. Murdoch argues that facts are decided upon within the framework of the individual consciousness of the moral being. 
So she says, um, hang on. I'm giving away my quote, my quote from her. She believes that morality is bound up with our, our deepest conceptual attitudes and sensibilities about the world, which determine the facts from the very beginning. As Murdoch writes, we differ not only because we select different objects out of the same world, but because we see different worlds. And for Murdoch, seeing our moral world, understanding our moral world, is our prime task as moral agents. Now, this idea of seeing different worlds and the way in which Murdoch describes this offers a link clearly to the way in which films can offer visions of worlds in which moral journeys take place, not just narrative arcs, stories where people make certain decisions and do certain things, but transformative moral experiences for the characters within the diegesis, clearly, but also for us as we experience the film. So what I'm trying to do with this aspect of Murdoch's work and cinema, then, is to draw upon Murdoch's analysis in my analysis of film, and then to extend this to the relationship we might be able to understand having with the film world and the real world around us. So now, in my final section, I will bring together some of the moral philosophy of Iris Murdoch with the moral agency of um, Lisa in Kenneth Lonergan's 2011 film, Margaret, um, in an investigation of how film might be a moral fable that is relevant to our actions. Has anybody seen Margaret? Nobody's ever seen Margaret. Thank you. Isn't it great? Um, So, Margaret was shot and completed in 2007, not released until 2011 due to disputes with the studio, Fox Searchlight and other producers. It was originally conceived of as in excess of three hours. It was allowed into cinemas at two and a half hours, with the extended cut now available on DVD. I would recommend experiencing the whole whole ordeal. It is an ordeal. Um, Joel Lovell of the New York Times described it as a big, messy, problematic film. Peter Bradshaw, who probably all know a bit more from The Guardian, called it a sprawling, neurotic nightmare of urban catastrophe. <laughs> what a review. <laughs> Filmmaker would be going, yes. Many critics and bloggers refer to the film as being operatic. And this impression is founded mainly on the highly charged emotions of the central character, Lisa, played by Anna Paquin, who we probably all remember as the little girl in the piano as well. Lisa wrestles with the dramas and demands of being a teenager with divorced parents, living in New York City and going to an exclusive, pretty privileged high school. Following a road accident, which happens in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film, for which she feels partly responsible, Lisa holds an injured woman during the last minutes of her death, coming face to face with the imminence and immediacy of loss of life. She holds this woman whilst life ceases. The rest of the film, the rest of the two and a half hours, three hours, is concerned with how Lisa resumes life after this incident, the decisions she makes to tell certain untruths, her pursuit of particular people in order to resolve her confused and conflicted emotions about the whole thing, and the volatile, self-centred maelstrom of emotions that surround her. So the film explores Lisa's attempts to make good choices, the reasons why she might be considered to make bad ones. And I'm going to show a quick clip from this. 
In this clip, Lisa goes to visit the driver of the bus that hit the woman pedestrian in the accident. Lisa has tracked him down, she's tracked down where he lives, and despite initially having said to the police that the accident was not the driver's fault, that the driver was at no fault at all, she is now seeking from the driver what she perceives to be a more honest account of the accident. I'm going to show this clip um, and then explain to you how it operates in the film on us and Mar Lisa. This, the beginning, it's not very... Uh, maybe we can pull in those, those two kinds of um, This woman on the poster is actually her, Lisa's mother. She's a famous actress. So Lisa comes from a very privileged... Oh, that's much better. Thank you very much. Um, and this is Lisa setting off on her quest to find the driver and challenge him about the version of events. bother you. We never met. I'm Lisa Cohen. Yeah. What can I do for you? Well, do you remember me from the bus accident? I don't know. What's this about? Well, would it be okay if I talked to you for a minute? What do you want to talk about? I, I, don't, I don't understand. I just want to talk about the accident for a minute. I don't want anything, and I'm not here to do anything bad. I just want to talk to you 
about it. I was going to call first, but... It would have been better if you had. We're about to sit down. I don't know what this is. Uh... Yeah, all right, let's go inside. I'm sorry, can I use your bathroom? Uh, no, let's just go inside. Jerry, let me use the bathroom. No, I don't want to use the bathroom. I don't understand what this is. Honey, it's right down the hall. Hey, will you kids settle down, please? I'm not kidding. What's the matter with you? Who is she? She just said something. What's the matter with you? Let me use the fucking bathroom. Who is she? No, I want to hear what this is. Well, if it's okay, I'd rather talk to Mr. Moretti in private. No, it is not okay. Look, we're just... Okay. What? Okay. I hope this isn't going to insult you too much. Insult me? I was just wondering if you felt bad at all about what happened. About the accident? Yeah. No, honey, are you just... Are you just upset about the accident? Yes, I'm upset about the accident. I'm very upset about the accident, and I wanted to talk to you about it for a minute. Why is that so strange? Okay, you know, Could I please there? talk to you alone? Okay. What is going on here? Nothing's going on here, so why don't you calm down? Look, go ahead inside. Let me find out what this is. In the meantime, why don't you make sure those kids aren't killing each other, all right? Well, you know what? Let them kill each other. Give us all the rest. Or at least what? I just... I, I just... Well... Yes, I, what? I just want you to know... Well, you, you probably already know, obviously, that I told the police on the police report that I thought the whole thing was an accident. Uh-huh, right, because it was an accident. Well, I mean, I know you didn't do it on purpose. On purpose? But it wasn't like... What? Speak, what? Well, I mean, we were looking at each other. Who was looking at each other? You, you and me? Well, yeah. I mean, not like romantically or, or anything. Ro romantically? Okay, okay, scratch that, because that's not even relevant. Look, you're not coming through very clearly. Okay, if you could just let me, from my point of view, I was out that day trying to buy a cowboy hat, so... I was waving at you because you were wearing one. And you were kind of waving back. And I know I was distracting you, but I did see the bus go through the red light. And that's when it hit that woman. Okay. I'm getting a little confused here. Only nobody said that to them, and I just wanted to, like, acknowledge with you that that's what First happened. First of all, I don't really know what you mean by waving at you. What, what were you, like, trying to catch the bus? No. I, uh, yes, but I Maybe was... Maybe I was waving to, like, at you to say, I don't know, like, step away from the bus. Because if you, if the bus was in motion, then I would have been waving you away for your own safety, but that's all that would be. You don't remember looking at me and waving at me? No, not really, no. Your brother's on the phone. Tell him I'll call him back. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. Okay, I'm going to stop it there.
exhausted after that, after that scene. Um, um, I, I would let it play on the next three or four minutes, but I want to get on with some talking about it. In this clip, Lisa confronts the realities and complexities of the issues of her, of her, of her, that surround her seeking what she considers to be an acknowledgement from the driver about what really happened, what she considers really happened. Now, up to this, the film has given us an experience of the lead-up to the accident that accords with her view. Lisa runs alongside the bus, trying to get the driver's attention, and he flirts and teases her. Like says, what, he's wearing the Stetson, she wants to buy one. He's flirting with her, teasing her. He does skip the red light. Um, he repeatedly takes his eyes off the road. Their flirtatious encounter has resulted in a woman being killed. The death scene is one of the most traumatic and distressing death scenes I have ever seen on film. Um, as Lisa holds the woman in her arms, we and Lisa realise that parts of the body are left under the bus up the road. Um, and she has no chance of survival. We realise she has no chance of survival. But she is not yet dead. We are confronted with the last moments of this death on screen. The woman speaks. She asks if her eyes are open or closed. She mistakes Lisa for her own daughter. She then becomes filled with panic and confusion. Lonergan, director, says of the scene, that single incident drives the entire film and drives the entire journey of Anna Paquin's character. And it's a long film. And I knew that if that accident wasn't extremely awful, as awful as humanly possible, then there'd be no movie. You don't see any flashbacks of it. It's got to stay in your mind the way it stays in the character's mind. Now, that is a very acute instance of the necessity of the impact of an incident on screen to have an effect on the viewer. The impact of witnessing this death creates a gut-wrenching connection with the magnitude of Lisa's situation. On the spot of the accident, the urge to cover up their innocent but reckless complicity is excruciatingly acute. Was the light red or not? Was it the pedestrian's fault or the driver's? When the police ask Lisa, it hangs on Lisa's word. So later in the film, at this moment, when we visit the driver at his home, having not seen him since the accident, we set off on the journey with Lisa in her operatic bubble of personal quest and understanding. She's disturbed. She's racked with recall and nightmares. Of course she should speak to him to help her ease this nightmarish guilt and the pain that she is suffering. But when we arrive, as we get closer to the house, we, we learn more and more about him. Is he part of the local Italian community? He has a Stars and Stripes outside his house. He's a patriotic guy. There's a crucifix on the back of the wall as his wife opens the door. He's a Catholic. He has a wife. Um, when she goes in, they hear children crying. He has a family. We begin to realise what the ramifications might be, both in that room and in light of the wider institutions and networks that govern their lives. Um, and we, like Lisa, as the scene progresses, falter. Hang on a minute, why does he want her number? He asks for her, her number. What might his perspective be on this? What has been happening to him? This is dangerous. Uh, perhaps she should leave him alone. And our appreciation of the rights and wrongs of the situation, <coughs> which is already uneasy, is now confounded. 
This is the way the film works. Lonergan, the director, has stated that he wanted to make a film about the way in which teenagers transition into an adult world. So the film is inspired by um, and is called after the um, character um, Margaret in the poem Spring and Fall by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And this poem is about a young girl's realisation that things pass and the passing of things is sad. It may just be the falling of leaves and the onset of autumn, but it, it re the poet realises that there is more loss and sadness to come for this girl. She will come to understand mortality and loss. So the film, then, is partly the telling of Lisa's existential lightning bolt and her realisation that the world around her is too tired or resistant or bureaucratic to bother with her concern about the truth. But the film also works as an obstacle course of moral reasoning and analysis. And here's where I turn to the philosophy of Iris Murdoch. And to think about this film, I'm concentrating on one paper that Murdoch gave to the Aristotelian Society in 1956 called Vision and Choice in Morality. It's the most rich, dense article paper you can imagine. And in this paper, Murdoch is teasing out the position of her contemporary moral philosophers and where they locate their material for their moral philosophy. For <coughs> Murdoch, moral philosophy, and there's some quotes here, they might be a bit small, but I'm going to read them anyway. For Murdoch, moral philosophy can be seen as a more systematic and reflective extension of what ordinary moral agents are continually doing. What she means by this is that universal rules and models worked out in abstraction <coughs> are not suited to understanding the complexity of everyday life and inner lives of individuals. Murdoch's very concerned with this phrase, inner life, in this essay, in this paper, which she refines as inner life in the sense of <coughs> personal attitudes and visions which do not obviously take the form of choice-guiding arguments. So she's saying, you don't set up a framework with, which guides you to make certain choices in certain situations. She asks us to consider moral being <coughs> as self-reflection or complex attitudes to life which are continuously displayed and elaborated in overt and inward speech but are not separable temporally into situations. So for Murdoch, she says, a term like good cannot have the simple empirical meaning as red is perfectly interesting in relation to this film. There are many complex regions that lie outside actions and choices, and we need to attend to these areas, or visions, as she calls them, which we may not always be able to understand without reflection. So this discussion of how moral insight differs from moral performance links clearly with Lisa's situation in Margaret. Lisa comes to see, through the film, how a moral life is far more complex than whether one traffic light was red or not. Even though the ramifications of this may be <coughs> far-reaching, they cannot be dictated by one objective act. It's not as simple as the fact that her decision to lie was wrong and her decision to come clean is right. This is quite hard to resist, however, as truth is so kind of tightly bound up with objective behaviourist morality. But so Lisa's moral maze 
may be seen as creating a filmic moral philosophy along the lines Murdoch describes, a vision of the self-reflection Lisa has to experience in order to come by her own vision of a moral world. The moral world is created by what happens to her and what she chooses to do, but far more than this, it is also affected by the behaviour, choices, problems, conversations and happenstances that circulate around her and satellite off in different directions. And the film conveys this cinematically through unfinished conversations, overlapping conversations, snippets of overheard dialogue, unresolved ambiguities and unsatisfactory non-conclusions. Murdoch can help us further in understanding how the film might contain or convey moral philosophy by her consideration of what she calls a moral fable. I think this is very useful for film. She asks, does a morally important fable always have to imply universal rules? And how do we decide whether a moral fable is morally important? So she talks about two types of moral fable. The one that is morally relevant, the other that is purely decorative. Now this idea seems to me to exist at the heart of film philosophy. Is something, is it just purely decorative? She talks about parables of widely held religions which have the concreteness of personal fables but which may have universalizable implications. Is this then, she says, the test for value, that it should have universal reasoning, universal application? For Murdoch, personal reflection is morally important in that it constitutes a person's general conceptual attitude and day-to-day being, which in turn connects in more complex ways (coughs) with their more obviously moral acts, including person's meditation upon their own lives, such as that which lies ahead of Manly Hopkins' Margaret or Lonergan's Lisa. So what I want to take a step further is whether our experience of the film Margaret can be considered to be Murdochian moral philosophy. Is the film a morally important fable without being a universalizable model, or is it simply a purely decorative moral tale? And again, Murdoch helps us in this as she moves on to consider the contrast, such as it may be, between art and morals. For Murdoch, a moral agent may explore a situation imaginatively and in detail and frame a highly specific maxim to cover it, which may nevertheless be offered as a universal rule. This would suggest that the experience of watching a film such as Margaret might well be sufficiently universalizable to satisfy the more behaviourist moral philosophers amongst us. After all, as she says, one can meditate and explore the mysteriousness and inexhaustibility of the world, but meanwhile one has continually to make judgments on the basis of what one thinks one knows, and these, if moral, will claim to be universal. But, Murdoch argues, why should we blot out the backgrounds to these choices, which may be made confidently or tentatively? There's no surety here. Attending to the details and inexhaustibility of them may well induce humility rather than paralysis. And, she argues, this needs to be done in ways other than in language. She considers the limitations of language when it comes to serving us creatively. And she says, the task of moral philosophers has been to extend, as poets may extend, the limits of language and enable it to illuminate regions of reality. I love that for film. Illuminate regions of reality which were formerly dark. So... In calling for what she describes a fresh vision which may be derived from a story and which represents a mode of understanding, Murdoch suggests that moral freedom looks less like 
looks, looks like a mode of reflection which we, we may have to achieve and less like a capacity to vary our choices, which we have by definition. So, experiencing the long, tormented and disturbing three hours of Margaret creates, I suggest, a fresh vision derived from a story, but also the very cinematic telling of that story. This is what makes the difference. To return to the clip, the sight of the wife and the sound of the children convey the bus driver's home situation in ways that force us to make the realisation that he has a lot at stake. We're not told, we're shown. The come down from the setup of Lisa's operatic individualised quest, accompanied by the Traviata and images of post 9 11 New York, brings us sharply down to earth too. We don't expect him to deny it. We're not sure what to expect, but we don't expect him to deny their encounter at all. We gather the information there have been disciplinary proceedings and no findings of guilt. In the context of the film, we are unnerved by the conversation that does not, does not deliver any atoning liberation for Lisa. And we proceed to be challenged at every turn by the quandaries and frustrations that Lisa creates and confronts, befriending the dead woman's family, seducing her teacher, fighting with her mother, disappointed by her father. The web of individuals with their own inner lives and moral frameworks is complex and connected and not all through main narrative events. It's not just about the story of the film, it's the experience <coughs> of these people's inner lives. This complexity, as well as the film's long duration and slow pace, afford unusually multi-layered engagement with the events on screen and the truly traumatic early accident serves to sustain the attention required from us in order to suffer the moral discombobulation that the film inflicts. So, to conclude, by bringing Murdoch and Margaret together, and this is a deliberately blurry picture, um, as Lisa suffers her discombobulation, by bringing Murdoch and Margaret together in an exploration of the moral decision-making of the film's protagonist, and our assessment of her choices, we can learn about the idea of film as a morally important fable rather than a fable that is purely decorative. Vitally, we do not have to learn a universalizable lesson from this. We do not have to learn what the right thing to do in the certain set of things is. Neither do we have to decide whether what Lisa did was, was the right thing or not. The film thwarts our attempts to identify the right thing on screen. It cannot be reduced to the red light and instead creates a maelstrom of people making moral decisions tentatively, confidently, against a range of backgrounds, many of which are suggested without even being developed, serving to stress the multitude of moral agents with their own inner lives. As Lisa arrives at a state of distressed but reflective realisation of the uncertainties and brutalities of social living, then we, as distressed and hopefully reflective participants in the film's moral philosophy, cannot help but recognise a moral fable that constitutes what Murdoch might call a philosophical picture of morality. Thank you.